Adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Olivia here. I want to tell you about a new podcast from Axios called One Big Thing. It's hosted by Nyla Boodoo and features interviews with leaders you know or need to know in business, politics, and culture. Each week, you'll hear one big conversation on the trends shaping our world from people like Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, technology reporter Ina Freed, and chef and humanitarian Jose Andres. So go ahead, listen to One Big Thing on your favorite podcast app. New episodes drop every Thursday. Hi, I'm Lauren. And I'm Hannah. And this is Bio Eats World, our podcast where we talk about all the ways biology is technology. So Hannah, this episode is called The Thermodynamics of Life. Let's start by talking about the big idea here. Well, in this conversation, we talk with the physicist Jeremy England all about his new book, Every Life is on Fire. And in that book, Jeremy tackles straight on the idea of how we understand the origins of life and what we understand to be alive and what isn't from a physicist's perspective. It's a big idea and a difficult one to describe. So Lauren, I'm curious, how would you describe what you heard in the podcast? What I took away was a whole different way of thinking about life, of thinking about adaptation and that distinction between what is life and what is not life and how that distinction is far finer than I had ever appreciated. The conversation with A16Z general partner Vijay Pandey, Jeremy England, and myself also touches on what happens if you rethink Darwinian evolution, not in terms of survival of the fittest, but instead from this physicist perspective as the properties of certain energy states, how they change and adapt and find new equilibriums in response to their environment, and how complex and finely tuned the behaviors of those changing energy states become as they adapt to new environments. Yeah, I especially loved the conversation you guys had about machine learning and that sort of queasy middle ground of what is lifelike behavior and not. And also how you guys talked about the fundamental nature of the relationship between science and religion. Yep, we covered a lot of big ideas. So the conversation begins with, well, the very beginnings of life. Okay, so let's start at the very beginning, literally. This book is about life's origins. It's not every day that we get a new idea about how life came into being. So can you tell us a little bit about why you even began thinking about this subject? A very common approach in, in, in theoretical biophysics is to take part of a living thing, a, a molecule that makes a tick or some piece of a cell or what have you, and try to use ideas from physics to explain to yourself something about the function of this piece of a living thing. But there's a different way you can approach the biological system as a physicist, which is how does matter get this way? Because when you encounter living things as a physicist, uh, they're already in this special, exquisitely refined state. And then you, you start asking yourself, okay, well, if I start with matter that isn't this way, when does it get more this way and why would it? What you're really talking about is 
what is alive and what's not that boundary between life and not life and the distinctive behaviors of life. It feels to me like we understand a lot about the rules around us, but we don't sort of understand this fundamental nature of what's underneath that somehow. I think in practice, often uh, you start spending more time with the trees than the forest. And you, you know, maybe originally you cared about cancer. And so then you study kinases and you're studying this particular mutation, the kinase or particular structure of the kinase. And you drill down so deep because you have to go deep to make an impact that uh, I think people forget about the fact that these things are living. Yeah, absolutely. Because really with biology, you take for granted the existence of things that you call alive and you're trying to do science on understanding, you know, what makes them tick. In physics, your starting point doesn't see the difference between what's alive and isn't. And that's because it really addresses itself to the world in terms of, let me first try to define in physical terms, what are the characteristics that are distinctive of life? Self-replicating things, things that copy themselves, or things that learn to harvest energy from challenging sources in their environment, or things that accurately predict their future based on the statistics of their past. So those are all things that living things do. Can you give an example of that? Sure, sure. We could easily scare up an example of, of something that exhibits a lifelike behavior, a behavior we think is distinctive of life, but which we definitely wouldn't want to rush to say is alive. So self-copying is perhaps the best example of this. We now in the world have all sorts of things that copy themselves that we've made in the computer world. We also have fire, which in some sense is a self-spreading thing, but to rush to say, oh yeah, fire's alive. I mean, then that kind of distorts the word beyond its original meaning. The point is not to say, let's say everything that self-replicates is alive. Instead, let's say, let's look at self-replication as a physicist looks at a phenomenon and then says, what can I derive or prove about the limits on this kind of a phenomenon or the conditions in which it might emerge? You know, it's probably also re relevant to make a distinction because, yeah, you know, F equals MA doesn't sort of uh, make a difference between life or not life. But it's a classic thing, even just within physics, of emergent properties and that these things are associated with condensed matter physics or system mechanics and so on. And even I think within physics, it's a different subset for how to be thinking about these things. The key idea in, in the kinds of lifelike behaviors that you can start to try and explain with it is about the relationship between the pattern of the energy source in the environment and the response properties of the collection of matter in the system for the particular pattern of energy in the environment. That determines the evolutionary history of the hunk of matter in question. So in the Darwinian argument, we have things that make copies of themselves, and we know how to argue for emergent behaviors or properties that are adapted to the environment because we say, ah, ah, your parents and grandparents were good at surviving and reproducing in this environment and they passed on those traits to you. In a general physical scenario, you don't have parents and grandparents, but what you do have is antecedent structures. You have shapes the system used to be in and there were moments in that history where in a sense, a choice was made about which way to go. And you have a partly random and partly driven and environmentally determined exploration of that space of possible shapes. And the key point is that if you're better at absorbing energy from your environment, then you can get lifted up to higher energies and therefore have more of an opportunity to undergo very irreversible changes in shape. Okay, let me see if I'm understanding what you're saying. So instead of evolution, the idea is that there's a certain structure and energy 
to a certain kind of quote unquote living thing. And then there are shifts and changes that make certain choices emerge or different possibilities. And then because of those, this energy will change form in some way. So it's sort of like a different kind of like an energy evolution instead of survival of the fittest. Instead of saying instead of Darwinian evolution, I would call it a generalization of the idea viewed through the lens of physics. Thermodynamically speaking, in order to make a copy of yourself, because you have to grow faster than you fall apart, that requires that you're absorbing energy from your environment and dissipating it while you're doing that, which means that getting better at copying yourself does, from a thermodynamic perspective, look like this trajectory of being in a specialized energy-absorbing state and using that to undergo an irreversible change, etc. So essentially, evolution is one example of what you're describing as this change in energy states. Exactly. So Darwinian evolution and and self-replication, natural selection, they become a special case of a more general physical process that you could still say is going on. And so then the evolution, it's still an evolutionary process, but it's about how the pattern of energy sources in your environment cause a bias in how you explore the space of possible shapes that your matter can be in. And that bias ends up in the specialness or exceptionality or fine-tunedness of the shape that you end up in long time later at the end of the process. Okay. We're talking on a very high level about sort of laws of physics, but I'd love to talk about like, what does that actually mean for the life around us all the time and understanding it on a daily basis? Energy is a physicist's fancy way of talking about either motion or the potential for motion. And that is, is, is what we're talking about here. So I have a collection of particles. They're all sticking to each other and banging into each other and producing motion as they move along and interact. What Jeremy's talking about here is very much a physicist, a system mechanician's definition of energy and thermodynamics and heat. This isn't something that is a, an analogy or a metaphor, but something that can be rigorously put within the foundations of equilibrium and non-equilibrium statistical mechanics. And the point is that if I have an external source of energy in my environment, something like I'm hitting the system with a hammer, or I'm singing at it, or I'm shining light on it, you're changing the configuration of the system somehow. If you're talking about assembling you know, ice crystals by just cooling down water or something, the only energy exchange going on there is just thermal fluctuations, kind of random kicks from being at some temperature and, and things sort of banging into each other somewhat randomly. If you think about how energy goes through a living thing, you know, I ate lunch today, and if I didn't eat, then I'd start to fall apart. But somehow, delivering energy into my body in the way that we think of as eating healthy food or or what have you, is going to stimulate all of these different motions and processes that look from a medical or biological perspective like self-repair. I can't, with a living thing, say, well, instead of having your sandwich today, why don't you just have an equivalent dose of dynamite or maybe, you know, radiation of some kind, you know, you can deliver energy into a pile of matter in a lot of different ways. And if it's in any particular form that isn't matched in some sense to the structure of the living thing, then it can activate all sorts of motions that we think of as damage that are about rearranging the pieces so that it looks like a bull in the China shop is kind of raging through and tearing things apart. But one of the things that's so striking about living things is that they always have ways that energy can be delivered into them that instead look like they're self-maintaining, that you can have flow going through the system that 
not only doesn't disrupt things, but even activates things that look to us like repair and maintenance. It's interesting that you've got like, Jeremy used the example of ice crystals. You've got ice crystals on one side, which can order into many different types of ice in different ways and very orderly. You've got life in another. And what's fun is, uh, to me at least, is especially thinking about the things that are right on the interface between something that is clearly not life and something that is clearly life. And that's something that you actually can see emerging in relatively simple models and simulations. If I take a mechanical network of masses and springs that are randomly connected together, where the springs can kind of pop open and closed and change their length, then as I shake one of those particles at a particular frequency, all the masses and springs are gonna start kind of randomly rearranging themselves. Everything scrambles again and rearranges, and it goes through this transient period of looking random, and then suddenly, or in some cases more gradually, things really settle down. And the way that it absorbs that energy is carrying it in this very orderly coordinated motion that embraces all the different parts that are moving together. And now suddenly the energy flow isn't disrupting anything anymore. And then it finds a new self-organized state that's very well matched to the particular properties of the new way you're driving the system. And that's what you're saying is lifelike behavior, that reorganization? So one aspect of that is that you end up in a state that's stable given a certain environment. It's in this exceptional shape so that if you change the environment, you're no longer in a special shape for that environment, and then you get scrambled by your energy source and your environment. There's another aspect as well, which, so we carry this forward into something that sounds like machine learning, and you can think about what's called a random spin glass, which is basically a model of a bunch of atoms on a lattice that sort of are somewhat random in how they like to orient themselves with respect to each other. And you imagine taking such a system and sort of banging on it with a pattern environment that has a barcode to it. So I take atom one and I try to push it up and I take atom two and I try to push it down. I take atom three and I also try to push it down. And if you start switching through random up-down codes for how you're banging on a system like this, you see this relaxation of the system to this more quiescent orderly dynamics where it's absorbing less energy from that constant sort of hammering from the environment. But then if you change the collection of barcodes that you're using, there's this big jump in the energy absorption. The system undergoes this large-scale rearrangement. And you can notice that. What you've done is you've self-organized something that's acting for you like a novelty detector. It's saying, you've just done something to change the pattern of my environment. And you didn't have to program it to do that. You're just banging on the system with a pattern, but with a complex pattern. And the response of the system actually learns to reflect something about a prediction about the future, in a sense, that you can read out if you basically surprise it. Well, and the connection between spin glasses and, and machine learning is pretty deep because you think about like the models for neural nets are typically, the simple ones are often spin glass-like models. So the idea here is instead of a, atoms interacting, you have neurons interacting with different weights. And so uh, here too, this isn't necessarily a metaphor, but something where the two models are isomorphic, like the math for one is in some cases identical to the math for the other. And what I think is interesting is we talked about emergent properties. Why deep neural nets work is an interesting question, that these things are sort of at this uh, sort of interesting boundary between something that's not living and something that is living, and then starts to take on these properties. It's just this sort of really beautiful metaphor for describing what natural order is and change is. The laws that set things into patterns of movement or not and how they change. Would that be like a vast oversimplification? I don't think so. One of the things machine learning is great at is finding hidden lower dimensionality 
that's in the behavior that's happening in a higher dimensional space. By eye, it looks random, but actually it's still living in a very low dimensional shape that just is embedded in this very high dimensional world. And what the physical theory gives you in these examples is the ability to start looking for that lower dimensionality and identifying it and saying, what is actually exceptional about this collective dynamics that I'm seeing? Which you mean to be that collection of collective dynamics, meaning life. Well, yeah. So how are we going to draw the connection back to life? Living things have form function relationships that are very impressive. They have wings that are good at flying. They have lungs that are good at breathing. What we mean by good at is that we think of that architecture as being hard to get at random, right? So if I take, and this is a little bit gruesome, but if I take a lung and I put it in a blender, I don't expect afterwards to get something that's as good at doing what we think lungs are good at doing. Random arrangements of constituent parts don't recapitulate successful form function relationships. When does the physical dynamics of a many particle system that's being driven get you some kind of highly exceptional uh, behavior for that collection of particles that's kind of learning to absorb more energy and end up moving faster and higher as a result? It's as though it's a child on a swing that learns how to pump their legs with the right timing so that the swing swings higher. In other cases, you can have things that seem like they've learned how to be robust to your environment, how not to get shaken to pieces by the energy sources of your environment, but instead energy is flowing through it, it's not getting disrupted and rearranged. What really impresses us in lifelike functional success is the very high dimensionality of what you need, like being good at digesting a particular sugar. What we do see in everyday life are hopelessly complex behaviors that can emerge very easily from seemingly simple combinations of building blocks. So what I'm thinking when you're talking about this is you say at one point that searching for the origins of life are in some ways like combing the beach at Coney Island to understand the origins of a child's sandcastle. So why does this matter? Why is it not just combing through sand to retrieve a sandcastle that blew away years ago, you know, decades ago, whatever? We always kind of hold up the straw man when we're talking about origins of life where we say, well, how do you get so to speak, a chicken or an egg to spring ex nihilo from complete mess where there's no order and there's no coordination. If we're talking about biology, one of the things we always have to struggle against is the desire to explain everything life looks exceptionally built to do as being the result of Darwinian natural selection, because that's the only thing we can think of that's good at explaining that kind of structure. And I think the whole point here is to say, just because you don't have Darwinian selection and self-copying things yet, that doesn't mean you shouldn't be looking for specialized order, a specialized relationship between matter and the patterns of its environment that really you should call in some sense the result of an evolutionary adaptation. That can start to get going from the beginning. And it's sort of the bias of our discovery that we think self-copying is kind of the way that you have to get it. Even if you just think about DNA, DNA as the hereditary material, right? The message that's communicated from a parent to its progeny. If you just think about the role DNA plays in the cell without even imagining it being copied, it's a very special small subset of atoms that have this enormous significance for how all the other atoms in the cell end up getting coordinated and organized. So if I mutate a few dozen atoms in the DNA, I could kill the cell, I could cause cancer in an organism maybe, 
But if I mess with the same number of atoms in the proteins of the cell, it probably will go biologically unnoticed because it's just such a, it's like a fly buzzing in a hurricane. So what's so special about DNA? Well, if you can understand the physics of how some pieces of a physical system are likely to become the specialized coordinators of the rest of what's happening, and for them to contain an outsized amount of information about the patterns in the environment, and you can do that without needing self-copying as part of your explanation, then it just changes what you imagine the prebiotic condition to look like. And it also changes what you should consider surprising in what a cell can give back to you when you poke it in a certain way. And now you have to ask yourself, what is the cytosol of a cell computing for you for free? So all these kinds of generalizations of evolution may actually give us the opportunity to explore new forms of adaptation that are built into what a living thing is made of physically. And is that something that the living thing is going to take advantage of? You know, I think what is really interesting here is this middle ground and that it's the middle ground that always makes us queasy because like the things that are not life and the things that are obviously life are the easy things. As we start to dive into other things that are seemingly alive, like machine learning has like this knack of a lot of these properties. I think before we have something like science fiction alive, we're going to have things at this interface. And that understanding this interface and understanding it from either a system mechanic point of view or actually it's essentially the same thing in terms of information theory will sort of help us sort of understand these early stages, which is basically right where we are right now. If you think about how we try to compute things most traditionally right now, we take a bunch of tiny pieces of the world and put them under our exquisite control and then the computer comes up with the result because of how tightly controlled the relationship between all those tiny controlled pieces is when we start poking them a certain way. And if you knew that you had a certain number of atoms or colloidal particles or whatever, and that you didn't have to program them, they could be in some random naive state, but they were still going to collectively compute something quite complicated for you because of what you understand about the physics, then maybe you start to be able to compute at the scale of that number of atoms or whatever without needing to actually program that many bits yourself. So it opens up a new kind of question of what could you compute more effectively this way if you're harvesting the predictability of this complex reservoir computer. And there are amazing experiments people have already done where they've used turbulent fluids with flapping silicone octopus arms to solve nonlinear differential equations just by wiggling the octopus arm according to some pattern and then basically just harvesting the result of the computation from the turbulence that they observe. So just in terms of, you know, the way you wrote this book, it was really interesting. The structure you used, you used several key moments and images from Hebrew scriptures from the book of Exodus to help us understand this concept can you walk us through a little bit why you felt that these particular stories were the right stories and framework for that different perspective? I'm aware that when you talk about the boundary between life and non-life or the question of where life came from, you can't really raise that subject within the confines of what you'd call narrow natural scientific discussions. Because this question of the boundary between life and non-life, it just touches such deep chords in questions we all ask about ourselves and you know what we are and and who we are and everything like that and so it just seemed to me like i couldn't write a book about this and pretend to myself that that conversation wouldn't come up 
the Hebrew Bible addresses itself very directly to the perspective of the individual human being and their experience of the world in an unfiltered sense. It's not about how the world looks through telescopes and microscopes. It's about how the world is experienced by a person who's living in it and touching it and feeling it knock into them. So talking about what is the difference between a stick and a snake, or what is the difference between mud and blood. You know, these are things that are very tangible and relatable. And I think what's very powerful about that is that they actually end up providing conceptual tools that are very useful for translating a technical subject into a language that's very broadly accessible. These stories, these myths, these articles of faith have lasted so long that whether you ascribe metaphysical meaning to them or not, they have deep connection to the human psyche. What strikes me as you're talking is that science and religion are old and complicated bedfellows always telling stories to ourselves about who we are and how we interact with the physical world and how we define ourselves, right? And so instead of separating them, you kind of just go straight at it by entangling them entirely. Yeah, I think that there is this common conception that particularly Natural science and biblical religion are at loggerheads, and you have to pick one. But my goal, at the very least, was to try to prove that you can take an approach to both ways of looking at the same world that doesn't compromise on the intellectual honesty with which you treat each of them and shows how they can work together in the perspective of an individual who doesn't see a contradiction between them. Thanks so much for joining us on BioEats World. If you'd like to hear more about all the ways biology is technology, please go subscribe to the A16Z Bio newsletter at a16z.com newsletter. And of course, subscribe to BioEats World anywhere you listen to podcasts.